So again, if you're watching online, be sure to download the growth guide and you can check in by using the app or clicking on the link in the top right. So uh, again, we are in a series called In It Together, working through the letter to the Philippians. And the big idea is that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. I sound really echoey to me in here. I don't know if you guys can do anything about that. And I won't be singing, trust me. Uh, okay, so the, the big theme in here is to, as the Apostle Paul puts it, be citizens worthy. Citizens of heaven, not talking about earthly citizenship, but citizens of, uh, worthy of the gospel of Christ. We get this from Philippians 1.27, first half of the verse, part A, that says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Well, what does that mean? It means conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. And it seems like just about each week we've focused on a particular aspect of this verse. And today we're going to focus on the gospel, which it translates here as the good news, the euangelion. This is the proclamation of the good news. And what we see happening in the letter is that it's primarily an update letter. The Apostle Paul is letting them know what's going on with him, what his plans are, and the people that he's sending to the church. But there are also some dangers, some things that he's concerned about. And in this part of the, of the, of the letter that we're getting to now, he begins to address those. And these are threats to the gospel. In other words, if people accept these things, their faith can be derailed by these dangers. So I'm going to give you an overview of the different things that are threatening the church at Philippi, and then we're going to focus in on the one that this passage that we're looking at today focuses in on. I'll just warn you, today there's a lot of alliteration in today's message, and I'll show you that it's biblical too. So when pastors use alliteration, it's biblical. I'll show you that in a second. So first off, there are dangers, and this is a part that we've already talked about before. The Apostle Paul is in prison. He uh, is in danger of losing his life. He's writing to a church uh, that is being persecuted. So there is danger. We see this, for example, in Philippians 1.29, where he says, you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. So he says, this kind of goes together. When you place your faith in Christ, when you're a follower of Jesus, suffering, opposition, persecution will sometimes follow as well. He's experiencing that. They are experiencing that. Second, and this is the one that we're going to be focusing on today, he talks about the dogs. Now, I'll, I'll explain this a little bit better a little bit later, but dogs is not your family pet dog that's a part of your family. This, this is not the way that they would think of this. This was, this was the, the feral, uh, running through the streets, dangerous, dirty dogs. And he says, be steer clear of the barking dogs. What is he talking about? Not literal dogs, but he's talking about the opposition, the people that are trying to sell them and convince them to believe in a false gospel. He calls them the barking dogs, religious busybodies. Then thirdly, this, the third danger that the church is facing is that of division. There's division in the church. Uh, we see this hinted at, at a passage we've already looked at, Philippians 2.2, 2, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Now, the Apostle Paul probably would not write that 
if this was what was going on in the church, right? I mean, there's only a reason to say this if this is not the case. And then later, and we'll look at this in the coming week or two, he makes explicit one of the things he's talking about. He appeals to two women in the church, Euodia and Syncety, please be, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. There's some kind of division, some kind of argument, some kind of at odds, uh, uh, working at odds that's going on there, and he wants to resolve that. So back up a second, and we're talking about threats to the gospel, to the good news, to the message of Jesus, which I shorthand as who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for us. That's the gospel. That's, the, that's kind of an outline of the gospel. And he is focusing in on these people that we're trying to sell them on an alternate gospel. And it really boils down to this question, and that is, where does your confidence lie? Where does your confidence lie? In other words, as you think about your relationship with your heavenly father, you think about the creator God, where does your confidence lie? Are you confident that he has forgiven and received and accepted you? Do you go to him in prayer, in confidence, knowing that he's eager to hear you and wants to answer your prayers? Or do you go with a little bit of trepidation? Do you wonder if he truly accepts you, if he's truly forgiven you? When you think about your past and your track record and the things that you have done, the things that you maybe are doing right now, does that erode your confidence? Do you feel like, eh, I'm really not sure where I stand with him? I know better but I haven't done better. I believe what I think are the right things, but I'm not really sure where I stand. And even believers, I find, and I can speak from experience, when I'm doing well, and I feel like I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do and doing well, then I have more confidence. And then sometimes I just blow it, right? I do something I knew better. I just kind of, you know, it it just doesn't work out the way I'd hoped to. I don't live up to my own standards. And then I'm kind of like, uh, you know, do I really want to go to God? Do I really, does he really want to hear from me? That's just, uh, even if I know better, sometimes those feelings kind of creep in and seep in. And so th- what, what that's really dealing with is where does your confidence lie? Does it, does it lie in your performance? You're believing the right things, doing the right things, jumping through certain religious hoops, and, and that's where you have confidence before God? Or does it or should it lie in something else? That's what we're going to be talking about today in a message of called Derailing Dangers. We're talking today about confidence. And here's the bottom line. A faith focused on Jesus diffuses derailing dangers. Told you there's a lot of alliteration in today's message. So, A faith focused on Jesus diffuses derailing dangers. So how do we derail these dangers? I want you to disregard false doctrines. We'll talk about that. Dump personal pride and dismiss perfectionist proclivities. So don't bother trying to write all those down. We'll come back to them in just a second. Uh, Then what I'm going to challenge you to do at the end, because we want to be able to make this practical, is to pick something that you've been doing or not doing. And that'll make sense when we get to it and then change gears. 
So this morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, and I invited Leanne DeHart to come up and read the scripture for us today. Leanne has uh, been coming to church for how long now? A little over three months. Oh, three months already? Okay, cool. And uh, Leanne is my kind of secret agent for newcomers because she sits in the back where they always end up sitting. <laughs> She's smiling. And, uh, and usually makes sure that somebody welcomes them and stays in contact with them. So I appreciate that, yeah, you, you being my secret agent. <laughs> so Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Okay, Philippians 3, uh, verses 1 through 14. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say to you, who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Mm. Amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that as we look at it today, that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired the word, would speak to our hearts and minds and help us to know and hear exactly what you would have us to know, and then give us feet that are quick to obey. And wherever we are in our spiritual journey, lead us and guide us 
to our next step. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so again, a faith focus, this is the bottom line, on Jesus diffuses derailing dangers. The focus of our faith is on Jesus. So the first thing that the Apostle Paul is dealing with is false doctrine. It starts out uh, with a theme that we've already been familiar with. It's Philippians 3.1. He says, whatever happens, or literally there it says, finally. Now, Philippians has four chapters. We're about halfway through, and he's saying, finally. So that's why when a pastor says in conclusion, and he's only about halfway through, that's biblical. So uh, this is what the Apostle Paul does. Is he, he's, he's kind of wrapping up. He's already given the update. He said, this is what's going on with me in prison. This is what I have planned for Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so he's kind of wrapping it up, but then he kind of shifts gear. He says, he comes back to this main theme. My dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Joy or rejoicing has been a theme that we've seen throughout. He said, in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, you can have joy. What is joy? Joy is the confidence that all will be well. And he says, I want you to, in the midst of whatever you're facing, I just want to leave you with this final thought. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, now notice it's not just rejoice. It's not just be happy. It's not just happy talk. It's rejoice in the Lord. In other words, put your, put your joy, put your hope that all will be well in the Lord. If you focus on the Lord, if you rejoice in the Lord, then that's going to put you in a certain mindset that is going to protect you because the second half of that verse says this, I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, this is kind of interesting because the question comes up, it's like, okay, rejoice in the Lord, you know, be happy in the Lord, focus on the Lord, that's all good stuff. But in what way is that a safeguard to your faith? How does that protect you in your faith? And I think a lot of times it's hard to see because he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. And then he goes into this section where he's warning against false teachers. And sometimes people have a difficult time saying, you know, what, why this shift? Some people have even suggested that this was two letters that were, that were smushed together. I don't believe that. But, but it's because there's such a shift there in tone and topic. But I don't really think that there is. I think that there is a connection. And here's how, if I were to try to trace the Apostle Paul's thoughts, it would go. It'd be like, okay, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. And then it's like he's thinking about the, the opposition that they're encountering and the false teaching and false teachers that they're encountering. And it's like, if, if you just focus on the Lord, if you're rejoicing, if your confidence is in the Lord, then you're going, it's, like, it's going to inoculate you against this false teaching because what they want to do is take your confidence out of the Lord and put it in something else. And that's the false doctrine. And in fact, I put this in your, in your growth guide. I've been trying to put a lot of good little extras and goodies in there. But one of the best ways that you can identify a false doctrine is if it's salvation equals Jesus plus something else. In other words, in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, in order to have your sins forgiven and to be in right standing with God, then yes, Jesus, but also you got to do this other thing. 
You got to keep this rule. You got to go through this religious rite. You have to believe these uh, extra certain things or not do these certain things. And if you have, it's possible that you've encountered this before. You know, you'll hear people say, well, if you're a real Christian, you fill in the blank, right? You, you either, you don't do that or you, you definitely do this, or else you're not a real Christian. And it has nothing to do with Jesus and the content of the gospel. It's something else on top of Jesus, and that is how you identify a false doctrine. The other thing is it's uh, Jesus equals his divinity minus his humanity. Now, that's, that's, that's a big thing in a lot of cults, you know, for example, in in our day. It has all the trappings and all the language of Christianity, but when you get down to the core of it, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's divine. And it used to be, it was not as big a problem now, but in the early days of the church, it was the other way around. They would say, Jesus is divine. He's so holy, so divine, so godlike. It's not possible he could really be human as well. Either of those, you exclude one or the other, you're in a cult. So, what he's doing there is saying, I'm going to safeguard your faith by focusing you on Jesus, and it's Jesus plus nothing else. Here's what he says as he shifts, uh, shifts gears and talks about this. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, what's going on here? From the early days of the church, as the church was spreading into the Gentile world, at first it was just with the Jews. And, and so they were saying, okay, you know, if you're Jewish, it makes sense for you to follow Jesus because we believe that he's the Jewish Messiah. But then the faith started expanding outside of that into the Gentile world and, and the question became, can you be a Christian without becoming a Jew first? Because the Jew, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so to some people's mind, it was like, well, you got to be Jewish first, and then you can be a Christian because Jesus is Jewish. But in order to identify as a, uh, a Jew, then you had to go through the Jewish rite of circumcision, if you were male, obviously, and then you had to follow the law. And so what they're saying is, oh yeah, you can be a Christian, but you got to be a Jew first. You have to convert. You have to be circumcised. And so the apostle Paul was constantly fighting against this because he, his position was salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. You don't have to go in through any religious hoops. You don't have to jump through any religious hoops or go through any religious rites. It's what Jesus did on the cross and faith in Jesus that brings salvation, and it's Jesus plus nothing. Now, I told you dogs was a little bit, and we, we think of dogs, we think of our family pets. They're part of our family. That was not the case for probably most of human history. Uh, they would think of, of dogs more as like, oversized canine rodents because they were just uh, roaming free. They carried disease. They were uh, dangerous at times. They would eat garbage. So that's just generally. To call somebody a dog was not a, uh, was not a compliment. You weren't saying, hey, you're a part of our family now. That's not what that meant. Uh, so, and also in the context that we're talking about here, I won't do it because a lot of time I brought a book to, but, but dogs are also not exactly um, 
well-loved from uh, in the Old Testament culture and scripture as well. Now, this isn't saying Jesus doesn't love dogs. Uh, we're not going to get into whether there could be any dogs in heaven, but from the, the, the culture of, uh, that the Bible grew up in saw dogs as, as like oversized canine rodents, basically. And so they, uh, that kind of transition to, well, they don't, they don't know the difference between clean and dirty. I and mean, you know the proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. You know, it'll eat dead things and, and it's just gross. So then the Jews in their, um, in their pride and also in their uh, arrogance towards the rest of the world began to talk about Gentiles in the same way. If you weren't a Jew, then you were a dog. You're a Gentile. You don't know the difference between something that's clean and unclean. And so it was very derogatory. And so he's saying, watch out. There are dogs on the loose. And then he says, these are people who are workers of evil. They do evil. And then he says, these are the people, in case it's not clear who I'm talking about, who are mutilators, who say that you have to be circumcised to be saved. Now, here's where the biblical alliteration comes in. I put this in your notes. But dogs, evil, and mutilators all begin with a k sound. So it's like very staccato-like. It's don't, it's the, watch out for this and this and this. And, and it, it's very strong. And the, the key word is that third one, because mutilator and circumciser kind of sound alike. So he's doing a play on words saying the, they, they call themselves the circumcisers. I call them the mutilators because what they're doing is of no value. You're just mutilating people. That's pretty strong. So he's saying, but why is, why is he so strong on this? Because he cares about the people and he knows the content of the gospel. I got a mailer this week in the mail. Maybe some of you got this as well. Probably 80% I agreed with, but there was 20% that was wrong and dangerous and derailing. And it made me upset. It was from another church, and I won't get into the details. But, but the, I, I, I kind of felt what I think the Apostle Paul was feeling there. It's like, I, I, this, these kind of people make me mad because they're derailing the faith. And they're, they're selling a bill of goods to people. So he says, in contrast, we, the people who follow Jesus, the family of God, citizens in God's kingdom, are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put in confidence in the flesh. And here's where he's contrasting this. They're saying you have to do this religious right in order to be accepted by God, and, and, and they, that gets them in the in crowd. He says, no, we are the in crowd who worship by the Spirit. This isn't something that's done in your flesh. It's something that happens by the Spirit of God. They, we boast in Christ Jesus. They're boasting about what they've done. And you are boasting about Christ Jesus. And do not put confidence in the flesh. Their confidence is in a religious right done in the flesh. We don't put any confidence in that. He wants to derail this false doctrine. He wants them to reject it so that they won't be 
derailed. So a faith focused on Jesus diffuses derailing dangers. The first one is to disregard false doctrine. He's saying this gets to the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's Jesus, salvation equals Jesus plus nothing and don't believe and don't give the time of day to anybody who tells you differently. And then he goes on to say, you dump personal pride. Now he's already introduced this by saying, we don't put our pride, we, don't, we boast in Jesus, not in our flesh. We don't have confidence in the flesh. But then he goes on to say, though I myself, Paul talking, have reasons for such confidence. If anyone wants to put confidence in their flesh, in their religious pedigree, I'm the one that could do it. And so then he goes through and says, if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I've enumerated them again in your growth guide. I'm only going to focus on the last two. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. There there uh, There were Jews who were Uh, spoke Hebrew and read the Bible in Hebrew, and they were kind of viewed as the more conservative, more religious, more observant kind of Jews. Then there were also the Hellenizing Jews. These were Jews that spoke Greek and lived other parts of the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire. They would read the Bible in Greek, and they spoke Greek. And and sometimes the Hebrew Jews would look down on the Hellenized Jews because they felt like, oh, they've kind of just gone with the world, right? They're kind of living like like Gentiles, even though they are Jewish. They're compromisers. And he says, I wasn't a compromiser. Then he goes on to say, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Zeal was kind of associated, it became associated with uh, a nationalistic fervor. Remember, one of the disciples was Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a were a political party that were committed to overthrowing the Roman rule by all means that they considered necessary, including violent means. And he's saying, I was so committed to protecting my, my country and my people that I was willing to employ violence. I, I was persecuting the church. I was going around getting people arrested, putting them in jail, and, and hoping to put them to death. And he said, if anybody wants to compare pedigrees if anybody wants to, uh, to get into a contest about who is the most religious, who is the most serious about it, I would win that every single time. But then he goes on to say, I once thought these things were valuable. I took pride in them. That I, my confidence was in them. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ. And that word is the word that's uh, famously a mild vulgarity. And, the, uh, and what it means is the garbage you throw to dogs, the trash, the, the junk. And so he's saying these people that think that they are the in crowd, they're actually the dogs. They call you dogs, but they're the ones that are actually the dogs. And all this stuff that they take pride in, that I used to take pride in, is not treasure. It is trash that gets thrown out to the dogs. Why? Because, as he explains in the next verse, God's way of making us right with himself depends upon faith. So it's not your pedigree. It's not that your parents took you to church since you were 
since the day you were born. It's not that you went through some religious rite or ritual. It's not that you're such a good person that you are so observant and you do all the things that are expected. None of that matters because God's way of making us right with himself depends upon faith and let me just kind of fill out the picture of what faith means in, from the scriptural perspective. The faith is the content which we believe, that Jesus was fully human and fully man, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross and died a death he did not deserve. That's who he is and what he did. What does that mean for us? It means that we can receive the forgiveness and grace that we could never earn on our own. So that's the content. That's the story. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That is our faith. But it's not just enough to know that. It's something that you have to personalize and internalize. And when we celebrate communion, like we will next week, that's the picture that we're painting. It's like Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood. His body was broken. But I'm going to apply that to my life. I'm going to take that in. I want that to count for me. It's personalized. So we put our faith in what Christ has done. And then there's also the element of faithful that we are faithful to Christ from that point on. Now, that does not mean that our salvation is a works-based salvation. What that means is that the good things that we do, the life that we live, is not a prerequisite or condition for acceptance. It is a result of our acceptance and adoption in God's family. So it's not that you have to measure up to a certain standard because none of us would and none of us can. But once you are in the family of God, God begins to change you from the inside out. You're already accepted. You're already forgiven. But he transforms you into a different person. So when I encourage you to say yes, I, I always give an opportunity for those that maybe you, you, your confidence has been in your religious pedigree or what you've done in the past or something like that, this is an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. What you did on the cross, I want that to count for me. Because you are the Lord, I'm going to follow you from this point on. That's what we mean when we say saying yes to Jesus. And then he transforms us from the inside out. I wanted to bring in this passage from Romans, again by the Apostle Paul, but he's explaining what this how this works. The law, doing the, doing, doing the law, was powerless uh, uh, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, you could never do it on your own. God did by sending his own son. So salvation comes from God, not the law. It happens not because of what we do in our flesh, but because of God's son, because our flesh was powerless and weakened. But God did it. He accomplished it. And then it describes what happens after you say yes in, back in Philippians. Remember I put in those blue boxes, those verses that would probably be uh, familiar and be good ones to memorize. It says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. You, don't, you come to Christ bankrupt. But once you are in Christ, he starts giving you a different desire, a different heart, and the power to do what pleases him. 
So that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says in Philippians 3, 10, and 11, I gave up all that inferior stuff. This is the message translation, if you haven't guessed by this point. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering. And what he's doing here is using a chiasm, which is kind of a mirrored structure. You'll see this throughout the scriptures if you look for it. It starts with resurrection, talks about suffering, suffering to the point of death, but death leads to resurrection, A, B, B, A. So he wants to experience the resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, go all the way with him to death itself. And if there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. He says, I'm going to pattern my life after Christ. I don't care about any of that other stuff that I used to count as to my credit because it's nothing in Christ. My faith is focused on Jesus and it diffuses those derailing dangers. It, gets, it takes away the power of those false doctrines. It dumps the personal pride that we would otherwise take in ourselves because none of that stuff matters. And then lastly, he says he's dismissing perfectionist proclivities. And this is one of the things that I think might be most valuable to some of you. Um, because so often, you know, we, we do okay but then there are times where we blow it and times that we trip up, times that we don't live up to our own expectations. And then it's like, you know, where do I stand with God? It's a reminder. It's an opportunity to be reminded that you didn't get into this faith because of your personal performance and you're not going to keep yourself in God's good graces through your personal performance. We all are going to fail. But you keep going. He says, I am not saying I have this all together, that I have it made. Yeah, all that other stuff that I used to count on, I don't count on anymore. I count on Christ, but I'm still growing. I haven't arrived yet. He says that exactly, but I'm, on, I'm well on my way, reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. I sometimes say my pastoral perspective is I'm much more concerned about your trajectory than your geography. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul here is saying. He's saying, I'm on my way. I'm moving in the right direction. That's your trajectory. Uh, Geography, we're all in different places along the journey. But I want you moving in the right direction. He says, I haven't arrived. My geography isn't where I want it to be. But my trajectory is moving in the right direction. And so he says, I focus on this one thing. What do you focus on, Paul? I forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead. For some of us, the thing that is hamstringing us, derailing us, is we're focused on the past. We're saying, God can't use somebody who used to be like this. Or I don't know if I'm forgiven for that, so how can I move forward in this? And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I took pride in all these fleshly endeavors and in myself, I was out there killing Christians and I'm not at all qualified for what God is calling me to do. But God has called me, and he's forgiven me, and he will equip me for what he calls me to do. So I'm just going to do this. The Apostle Paul said, I'm going to forget the past. I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to forget the past, and I'm going to look forward. I'm going to focus on Christ. I press on to reach the end of the race. 
and to receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. And I love that last word, us. This isn't just a Paul thing. This is an us thing. We forget the past. We put our faith in Christ and we follow him wholeheartedly to the end. Today, we've been talking about confidence. A faith focused on Jesus, you've got, you rejoice in Jesus, that'll be a safeguard against all these other derailing dangers. Get rid of the false doctrine. Don't buy into any of that. Jesus plus something or Jesus la- la- is lacking something, that's just not the case. Stop looking at yourself and taking pride or putting your confidence in your performance and instead focus on Jesus. And remember, you are forgiven, past, present, and future. God is working in you. He's going to change you. He's, uh, you're going to move in the right direction. You can't be tied down by the past. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This is the point where we take this and I give you something practical to do to make your life better, make you better at life that's going to bring glory to God. And that is to pick something you've been doing or not doing and changing gears. You know what a derailer is on a bike? It's that thing that on a multi-speed bike that takes the chain off of one gear and puts it up on the other. Now, when I was growing up and I just had a, you know, a BMX bike or something like that, when I was derailed, I was done. You know, you can't pedal anymore. It kind of puts an end to that ride until you get it fixed. And for some of us, that's what these things are doing. They're derailing us and we're not going anywhere. But I want to paint the picture of derailing as changing gears. You take your confidence off of these faulty things and you put that chain on Christ. You put your confidence in Christ. If you're going to get derailed, make sure that it's to shift gears and get in gear and keep moving in the right direction. So it's possible that some of these things I've been talking about, you've been derailed by them. Well, let's put it back in gear. Let's engage with Christ and let's do something because he is at work in us to want to and giving us the power to accomplish his good pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the cross. I thank you for Jesus, because if it were all up to us, if our confidence was in us, we would all be derailed. But through the cross, through Jesus, through the good news, through the gospel, you made a way for us to be reconciled to you, to be put back on track and to fulfill the purposes and good design that you have for our lives. Lord, I pray for each one of us that you would show us exactly what we need to do with what we've heard today and then give us the faith, confidence, and power to move forward with you in whatever that looks like in each of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen.